0: You're listening to The Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, joined today by Prashant and my colleague at The Diplomat. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good, how are you doing? Doing great. Uh, Glad to have you back on and um, looking forward to more of these podcasts in 2017. And actually, today we're doing a bit of a throwback and going back to the older format of the podcast when we would do multiple topics. So uh, we have a lot on the agenda today. First, we'll talk about... Uh, The difficulties between Australia and Indonesia, they've had a pretty rocky start to their year after the cancellation of a military exercise. And Prashant's actually written quite a bit about that, and it'll be a good way to reflect on the Australia-Indonesia bilateral, which is something we don't really get to too often on the podcast, so I'm glad we'll have an opportunity to reflect on that. And for the second part of the podcast, we'll get into something that um, I'm personally very interested in, which is strategic stability in South Asia and nuclear weapons, Um, and the peg for that is Pakistan's test of its first-ever submarine-launched cruise missile earlier this week. So Prashant, I guess uh, without further ado, um, let's talk a bit about what's been going on between Indonesia and Australia. So on January 4th, Indonesia's military spokesman confirmed that a bilateral um, military interaction had been temporarily suspended um, and the reason that was given initially was technical reasons and later we found out from the Australian side um, from both sides actually that it was based around some offensive training materials uh, that were found and you know these two countries have had some difficulties in their relationship um, but you know I wanted to turn it over to you so what are the uh, broader you know geopolitical implications of these tensions between Australia and Indonesia and how seriously should we take them
1: yeah um, you know that that's a good summary of where we're at I think uh, you know the initial uh, response from both sides and the media was that this is going to be yet uh, another one of a long line of sort of crises in a very turbulent uh, relationship Um, and as you mentioned this had to do with um, sort of training and and language issues between the two countries which relate to historical issues regarding you know West Papua and, and East Timor but then subsequently what we learned was that the suspension of military ties actually had to do with only language courses, right. um, and that the rest of the relationship uh, was fine. Um, but I think, you know, the the issues that you raised still remain. I mean, this reveals, first of all, how fragile and turbulent the relationship is, in spite of the fact that these two countries are still trying to forge tighter defense linkages. Uh, these are... Two very important uh, countries in the Asia Pacific—they've um, been boosting their ties uh, in a range of areas, you know, everything from terrorism, cybersecurity—but you know there, there have been a series of interruptions, and this is just the latest one. Um, but what I argued, in you know, one of my pieces on the subject was that what it revealed was that it—you know—there's this mistake that um, folks keep making about trying to hastily attribute. Any single incident that happens between these countries to sort of existential concerns about the country's future, whether Mm -hmm. it's these historical questions like East Timor, West Papua, or civil-military relations. Right. What you had here, Mm -hmm. yeah, because you know what you had here was um, right—a case where initial concerns that you know there was some deep bilateral disagreement between the two sides or some hijacking by high-ranking military officials, you know, was event eventually proven. Uh, what ended up uh, happening was this was a, a sort of dispute that was limited to a discontent expressed by some military officials on a particular language training course in Australia. Um, and subsequently, both sides downplayed it and restricted it to what the problem was, which was simply a disagreement over those language courses. Nothing more and, and nothing less. And I think you know, that if I were to point to one good thing uh, or a saving grace in this episode is the fact that both sides were committed to making sure that the relationship was on sound footing, even though there were some actors and obviously the, the media that were interested in making this much more than what it actually was.
0: So longer term, I mean, um, you know, looking ahead six months, you think this will um, appreciably slow down the pace at which Indonesia and Australia continue their convergence?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's that's the million dollar question. I I don't I don't think so personally because I think the commit high level commitment to a better relationship from both sides uh, is there uh, by both governments and uh, this is uh, before this episode happened there was already a uh, great cooperation between the two sides and, and and a huge interest in trying to expand the relationship not just because uh, there was goodwill but because there are these series of uh national security threats that are important to both sides that they need to work on you know these things like cybersecurity uh terrorism and also issues like defense industrial cooperation these are things that are, are are huge deliverables for both sides and i suspect that they're not going to want to jeopardize it based on this small incident obviously if you have another uh, issue that comes about like i remember in, you know, the last full suspension of ties were back in 2013 Those were regarding uh, allegations that the Australians had tapped the phones of Indonesian officials. I mean, if you had something like that, that I would think would be more of something where you'd see a full-scale suspension. But this thing, I I don't really see it uh, sustaining over time.
0: Got it, got it. Uh, Well, yeah, thanks for that that rundown. Anything else to add on the Australian-Indonesia front?
1: No, I I think we we we've covered uh, most of it. Um, I think one other thing to emphasize is you know, I, and I don't want to. We've done a number of uh, podcasts on on Trump already, but I do think that you know these are two actors where um, the United States and particularly under the Obama administration has talked about this idea of a principled and inclusive security network. And these are two countries that are both individual members of this network and could also be part of collaborative. Project X. So there is a deep interest uh, among U.S. policymakers in this relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the other development we wanted to talk to, about today was the sort of first ever mm-hmm. test uh, by Pakistan of a nuclear-capable Babur-3 submarine launch cruise missile. Um, and, and you wrote about this, uh, Ankit. We've had a lot of attention uh, to these issues at The Diplomat with respect to India-Pakistan relations. Obviously, this has significant implications. Once Pakistan would be able to fully develop and test it, um, it would have sort of a second strike capability. And it's obviously the big picture about this is you have two nuclear powers who have fought several wars with each other, um, both of which are building up uh, their capabilities, which has implications not just for both of them, but also stability broadly in in South Asia. Um, So what, what are your what's your take on The significance of of this development, but also sort of the broader uh, questions surrounding that.
0: Yeah, no, sure. I'm uh, I'm definitely happy to happy that we're finally getting to um, address this topic. We don't really talk about um, nuclear strategic stability too much on the podcast. And specifically, we don't talk too much about specific missile tests, I mean, outside the context of North Korea. But you're absolutely yeah. right that I think this, um, this development of Pakistan pursuing an SLCM, I think is a pretty significant development when it comes to the idea of nuclear stability between India and Pakistan, which, as you know, these two countries... Um, have the constant threat of nuclear war sort of hanging over their heads, particularly as they continue to nurture a pretty intense rivalry that we've seen get worse, uh, appreciably worse, over the past six months uh, since last year's flaring of tensions in Kashmir. And the context here is obviously important. I mean, this is a huge topic. Uh, You know, first, I think it's It's important to appreciate the two doctrines that the countries have. India famously has a no first use doctrine, but reserves the use of nuclear weapons at any yield um, given any first nuclear attack. And on the flip side, Pakistan, um, which does have a first use policy and is ready to you know deter uh, Indian conventional attack by threatening nuclear weapons has been pursuing low yield battlefield nuclear weapons, otherwise known as tactical nuclear weapons, which have caused quite a bit of concern, um, especially in the United States, where uh, you'll often hear that cited as one of the top proliferation risks and I think if you ask a lot of people where they see potential for you know an atmospheric use of nuclear weapons, um, a lot of them might cite Pakistani tactical nuclear devices. Uh, Which brings me to the SLCM, I mean, uh, so as you noted, um, you know, Pakistan sees this as a survivable second strike capability that um, it says will bolster its its doctrine of credible minimum deterrence. Um, So specifically on Monday, Pakistan tested this off the uh, off its Indian Ocean coast. um, And this was actually tested off of a submerged platform. So. The Pakistani military released a video that showed the missile ejecting from um, underwater, uh, taking off, flying, and hitting a target with a reasonable accuracy. And there was a little bit of interesting um, uh, you know, back and forth here by some open source intelligence analysts who actually, uh, alleged that Pakistan had faked part of the video, which is interesting since right. they've actually never done that in the past. Um, but if they did in this case, I think that raises some interesting questions as well. Um, uh, but, you know, assuming that this, um, assuming that the strike, uh, in the video and the ejection were accurate, uh, it shows, you know, significant progress. So where would this missile end up? It would end up in Pakistan's three Augusta 90B diesel electric submarines. Um, and I think the number of those submarines and the type of the submarines is pretty important since, um, a big part of a second strike capability is the idea of survivability. Uh, Survivability basically refers to the idea of, you know, how vulnerable are the launch vehicles for, um, you know, whatever missile you're talking about. So in the context of land-based nuclear weapons, you're talking about transport a transporter erector launchers, road mobile, um, ICBMs, and things like that. But with a submarine, it's very important that this uh, capability be adequately protected. Otherwise, a second strike capability is essentially useless if it can't uh, survive, um, you know, a first uh, a conventional attack by Indian forces. And this is important because, like, you know, in any conflict, uh, if, you know, Indian and Pakistan do ever go back to war, uh, where obviously the prospect of a nuclear exchange looms large, the Indian Navy will be looking to sink any Pakistani submarines it can find. Um, and the Augusta 90B, in this case, I mean, it doesn't really seem like that survivable of a sub to me. It's a fairly um, old design, fairly noisy, even for a diesel electric submarine, um, pretty detectable. Um, and that in itself doesn't really bode too well for um, the notion that Pakistan could really turn this into a credible, survivable second strike capability. Um, and, you know, India has... Uh, India's been working quite a bit on its anti submarine warfare um, suite with its uh, komorda class corvettes it has two of those uh, in service right now with two more in the way which could be you know which would be more than enough to um, monitor the Pakistani Indian Ocean coast uh, looking for these submarines um, you know something else that i discussed in the piece uh, which i should mention was actually co-authored with Vipin Narang of MIT is um, you know what model pakistan would use for its submarines in uh, you know carrying out patrols i mean there's two primary schemas you can look at here one is what um, you know scholars would call the bastion model which is where the submarines mm-hmm. essentially wait in port until they can be useful in a conflict but that's inc- you know that leaves them incredibly vulnerable since uh, foreign intelligence which i have a- would have a very good idea of where to start looking for those submarines. The other is continuous uh, deterrent patrols, which is really complicated. Um, And, you know, brings me to the other issue that I want to talk about, which is uh, command and control, which is um, something you 're always thinking about when you have submarine based nuclear weapons right. it 's something the Royal Navy and the United States Navy uh, do particularly well and have thought about for a long time. Um, so this is fairly obvious. you have submarines that are based underwater carrying nuclear weapons. They have a commander on board who will exercise a degree of authority over the launch of those nuclear weapons but will be in touch with civilian commanders who will be based on the land and ensuring that these submarines can maintain robust you know very low frequency extremely low frequency communications with the land based command authorities is critical and here again there's a big question over pakistan's capability to ensure that its communications links won't be broken You know, one of the things, uh, one of the situations you think about is what happens if these communications links are deteriorated? I mean, does the commander essentially assume that there's been a devastating first strike and, uh, you know, take action on his own? I mean, these are questions that um, might not sound like they're really in the realm of possibility, but they merit serious consideration because they can lead to huge miscalculation. Um, but yeah, right. I mean, you know, I, I've been talking for a while, so I'll, uh, I'll stop here. And if there's anything, uh, you know, you want to expand on a bit more, I think, uh, you know, I definitely have a lot more to say here.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, what, what you said is important. I think in the piece, the survivability portion in particular, because I think what this boils down to, um, you and Vipin both described in the piece is, you know, what how to frame the sort of stabilizing and destabilizing factors right. in the nuclear balance, right, between between these two uh, nuclear powers, and survivability um, is is part of that. I'm wondering, though, you know, uh, you follow India and Pakistan quite closely in South Asia more generally. Um, if you're uh, thinking in terms of an incoming uh, Trump administration, and one of your biggest concerns alongside Islamic State. Uh, and terrorism is nuclear pro- proliferation. Um, to what extent uh, do you have to worry about uh, nuclear issues in, in India and Pakistan? And how do you see the Trump administration talk talk about and address this issue with respect to South Asia? Because one of the interesting things is, you know, you mentioned correctly, I mean, we don't really talk about these, these tests um, a, a lot on these uh, individual podcasts, but essentially what this you know, the, the broader frame for this is the fact that you have this consistent sort of um, one-upmanship between the two two countries, right? In December, India tested uh, the, the Agni 5, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you have these tests coming out um, ever so often. But in terms of a broader perspective, though, we... We've seen so far, flashpoints emerge, you know with respect to Trump on Taiwan. that was one. And then with Rex Tillerson, you wrote about this too, on, on South China Sea. and these you know, sort of concern Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. But this is essentially a flashpoint that puts the India-Pakistan uh, relationship front and center in terms of a South Asia issue. So so what are your what's your take on that as as we get towards the inauguration coming up?
0: Yeah, no that's a that's a great question. And you know, there's definitely a lot of vertical and horizontal proliferation concerns in South Asia. I mean Pakistan is really the big one. It's the fastest growing nuclear stockpile in the world. Um, I, you know I believe there are estimates now that Pakistan's arsenal is definitely bigger than the UK's and France and it's gonna continue growing. Um, one of the unique concerns that I think comes up in the context of submarines um is you know, this threat that's really been on the minds of uh, American nonproliferation thinkers ever since Pakistan broke out in 1998, which is this idea that a uh, non-state actor could acquire a Pakistani nuclear device. And this, again isn't really uh, in the realm of something being completely ima- unimaginable, um, especially when you appreciate the fact that the Pakistani military uh, within its officer class does have uh, many elements who are sympathetic to the cause of anti-India non-state actors, anti-Afghanistan, anti-American non-state actors. Um, so this is something that's really thinkable. I mean, one example I'll point to here, and I covered this for The Diplomat a few years ago, was uh, the um, the attack on the PNS uh, Zulfikar, which was the frigate that was in port uh, in Karachi that was attacked by al-Qaeda in the Indian Subcontinent, um, and later when the Pakistanis investigated this and court-martialed um, some of the officers who were a guard with charging the frigate, they found out that they had actually provided information on uh, you know where this frigate would be located and how the terrorists who attacked the base could get in. And ultimately, the terrorist goal was to sail this out into the Arabian Sea to use to attack uh, Indian or American assets. Um, So, you know, things like this are really concerning in the context of submarines. And, you know, something I didn't mention first was that one of the things that comes up with an SLCM is um, demating the warhead isn't really an option. Uh, Mating refers to the idea of connecting the nuclear warhead, which carries the physical explosive payload uh, to the actual um, to the actual missile, which would carry the payload to its destination. Um, When you're talking about submarines, uh, which, you know, have to be ready to fire uh, very quickly and also for issues of safety, uh, you're usually talking about fully mated warheads. So, you know, I mean, if we talk about these submarines with fully mated SLCMs on board uh, using a bastion model where they're at port, uh, it's easy to imagine something like a more serious version of the Zulfikar incident where the terrorists actually succeed. Manage to, you know, either access the submarine. Um, I think the threat of potentially commandeering a submarine is a little difficult, since the knowledge of uh, how to actually operate a submarine is pretty specialized. That I wouldn't really expect non-state actors to have, but there is that threat. I mean, this is this is significantly concerning uh, in the Pakistani context. I mean, one of the things you'll hear. Um, you know, Pakistani um, nuclear officers from the Strategic Plans Division say is that Pakistan is very careful. It uh, very carefully vets the people who mm-hmm. get to handle its nuclear weapons. It demates them on land. Yeah. And it's o- it's really only, uh, you know, the tactical nuclear weapons which offer commanders a degree of flexibility. And that's specifically designed to oppose India's um, rumored cold start Um, strategy, uh, which actually I should make a note here. We should probably come back to that since we actually had a very interesting admission last week from India's new army chief about cold stars the first time an Indian official actually acknowledged that doctrine as existing, uh, which is interesting since that will actually stoke quite a bunch of fears in Pakistan. But, you know, going back to your broader question about Trump here, I think there's a lot um, that we will Potentially hear uh, from the Trump administration, especially when you think about guys like Mike Flynn, who are, uh, you know, who've written some pretty um, some pretty out there things about, you know, a global uh, terror network between North Korea, Iran and jihadists and the Islamic State and Russia. But, you know, these guys are very worried about the prospect of something like non-state actors getting access to nuclear weapons. And one of the areas where that's most likely uh, is Pakistan. And that's uh, one of the problems that honestly I see with this SLCM uh, idea.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and, and one of the interesting things obviously when you, as we think about the Trump administration is you know all, all these rumors going on in in, in Washington about individual uh, ambassadorial appointments and Ashley Tellis being being said to be one of the mm-hmm. the potential candidates for US ambassador to India because he's he's had a role in 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 the in the nuclear deal originally and you know deeply knowledgeable about uh, these issues, unlike some of the, the other nominees. So that's that's another interesting angle, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it'll be interesting to see if that uh, if that ends up being more than a rumor and actually comes to pass. I know a lot of people in India would be very happy with uh, the appointment of someone like Ashley Tallis, um, who would certainly help continue a lot of the momentum uh, that was set in place by Ash Carter and Obama in the Modi years, especially. Uh, he's very enthusiastic, yeah. enthusiastic about things like the DTTI and uh, defense mm-hmm. collaboration. And, you know, he's written volumes about uh, the Indian Air Force... Um, uh, exactly, carrier uh, cooperation as well. Um, but yeah, I think uh, this—you um, know—these uh, nuclear dynamics in South Asia are definitely worth watching closely, uh, particularly because of the tensions between these two countries and the potential for nuclear exchange, uh, which definitely exists. And you know, India has its own cruise missile program, which has actually been in the headlines recently for not doing so well. The nearby program, which uh, recently encountered a failed test again, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, India's potentially, in yeah, it's. Uh, Delhi's definitely thinking about uh, potentially not pursuing that, but now that you have Pakistan uh, showing off its SLCM, uh, that might, you know, bring those arms race uh, dynamics more to the fore in in Delhi as well. So, uh, so definitely a lot to think about here. And, uh, you know, I, I'd really love to do something on cold start in the future. I think that'd be very interesting, um, especially with the first acknowledgement on the Indian side. Yeah, we should. Great. Uh, Well, Prashant, thanks for joining me. Enjoyed the discussion as usual. Um, And if you're a listener and you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please make sure you do so. And also, if you're a longtime listener and you haven't rated us yet, please do that as well. It definitely helps the show gain more visibility. And finally, if you're interested in hearing something specific on the podcast that you haven't heard yet, just drop either me or Prashant a message. Our contact information is available at the website. Uh, Thanks for listening as usual.